Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School Podcast, the film memorabilia collector cast edition of the No Film School Podcast for the week of February 25th, 2024. I'm Charles Hayne, I'm here with Jason Hellerman. Good morning. I think we're casting ourselves into the future. This is, this is for the week of the tw- 19th. In my mind, because we were a Tuesday, I should add five days instead of three. I don't know. I'm not good at the maths. That's why I'm in movies. For the week of February 2020, February 23rd, 2024, the Film Podcast. This week, we are talking, first thing, lost media. And we're talking about recent lost media, movies you've seen in theater lost media. We're going to follow that up talking about the future of losing media, Sora. And we're going to wrap it all up with a conversation about why short stories are so hot right now. Jason covered it for the site. And I have a theory that Jason did not share in his article, but I have a very profound theory for why short stories are too hot right now. And it's one of them hot takes. I love a hot take. So stay tuned for that. I welcome all Charles Hayne hot takes. (laughs) I'm dropping them everywhere. And then at the end... We are going to talk about what our questions are for an intimacy coordinator roundtable. That's this week on the No Film School podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, our first subject this week, viral post went around the internet, reminding people that 28 Days Later, a movie that many of us saw in the movie theater, I saw in the movie theater in grad school as an adult, is not available. It is not on a streamer, and it is not available in any physical media format. Now, let's make a distinction here between that and like actual lost media, like the real ending of Ambersons, which apparently got dropped in the ocean because oh. Wells was partying in Mardi Gras, or there's a whole bunch of TV shows that were stored in Staten Island that also got dumped in the East River. People like dumping things in water. Yeah, I mean, we have a, a night fire at Warner Brothers, right? In the 50s or whatever that wiped out like 10,000 silent films or something like that. Well, and the, there was that massive fire. Universal had that huge fire in 2008. Yeah. And I remember because I worked across the street then and we would like spend our lunch break, like walk out of the building. We were on the Universal lot and we'd like walk out of the building and you just like watch the hill on fire. And you're like, are we are we going back this afternoon? And then we just like go back in the afternoon, like while the building burned out. LA oh, can feel apocalyptic, but that was actually... The 2008 fire was a bigger loss for music, like a lot of early music archives were lost. Mm. But it's a good reminder that you should not archive anything in places where there is like frequent forest fires a la Los Angeles. We're not talking about that. 28 weeks, 28 days later exists. You can find it. And I'm sure there's an archival master and I'm sure the mini DV tapes they shot on are sitting in a cabinet somewhere. What we are talking about is commercial availability. If right now I discovered someone I knew had not seen 28 days later, my only legal option for showing it to them is going to check it out of the library. Yeah, or there hoping, no, yeah. yeah, hoping you find a used DVD somewhere. Yeah, hoping you can go on eBay and pick up a Blu ray. And that is a, I mean, as filmmakers, it is a thing we should reckon with because it is a thing we should be conscious of in our contracts. You know, one of the big lessons of filmmaking is you have to read your contract and pay attention to it. You know, most famously, George Lucas, making sure he had the toy merchandising on Star Wars worked out well for him. Yeah. But I do think there's an increasing push towards filmmakers. And I think people in the last 10 years have been much more conscious of this. And 28 Days Later was really caught in the beginning. Like, it was caught in that time where you had a TV release and a theatrical release and a DVD. And it wouldn't have crossed anyone's mind that anyone would ever stop making the DVDs. Like, right. why would you ever stop making DVDs? Like, because of YouTube didn't even exist yet. It was Adam Films and nobody watched anything there. So the dating site that was YouTube wouldn't be invented for three more years. So, but I think as filmmakers today, we have to stay very conscious about the way in which our contracts are written in order to keep things available into the future as new media exists for instance i remember when i was at usc for your thesis film you have to clear everything 
And they brought a lawyer in to your thesis class and they explained the contract you were having people sign hmm. because if you had a brand appear in your thesis film, you had to get permission from that brand to appear in your film in all media, in perpetuity, in all universes, <laughs> current and discovered. So USC's contract assumed that we lived in a multiverse and that you would have a way to monetize your project in other universes. And wanted to be sure that was covered in the contract. I love that that is a thing. I love that yeah. they're like, and in the other universes. Yes. Universe 1403. You also need to be able to show your your film at Sundance 1403 if yeah. you get in. So I think Which it's that, very hard to get into. It's very hard to get into. Not like Sundance 1204, where like <laughs> yeah. everybody, you know, no <laughs> Everybody gets that. into that one. Yeah. No offense if you only got in there. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is weird to think about movies from a list. I mean, Danny Boyle is a list director, and not right. to mention that Danny Boyle absolutely a list, but not to mention a third twenty eight days later, twenty eight years later, has been greenlit with the original cast and director, and is set to shoot this year. So, yeah. how are you completing a trilogy without anyone being able to purchase or rent the first film in it? Yeah, and the star I, is still a star. Yes, yeah, the star is a greater star. Just than he in was. the biggest movie <laughs> of his career. Yeah, a yeah. movie that would make people think, like, oh, you know what we should do? Let's put one of his early movies back into theaters for a run, and then re-release it on streaming. Yeah, I think since that story went viral, I see on a Google search that it is now available on Sling TV, which I think is an ad-supported platform. So. So something changed very quickly. People were like, wait, we're losing money. Let's do something about it. But um, you shouldn't have to depend upon a viral post yeah, about how your yeah. movie's not available. Like, the yeah, dream we shouldn't of need digital to go streaming. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Movie. Bring back 28 Days Later. The dream was it was all going to be permanently in available. The reason why it's not all permanently available is not just about licensing. It's also about having to track paying residuals. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, like, if it's available and you have a residual-based contract, someone has to pay attention to how many times it is streamed and make sure the residual checks are going out. Yeah. So a lot of times, streamers will take low performers. They'll do the math and they'll say, okay, having this film required us to send like $73 in residuals checks to stay in compliance, but we had to pay an accountant and a lawyer for 10 hours of work, which cost yeah. us $1,000. So did we get our money's worth, which is why the streaming, I mean, it's one of those, there should be, I'm sure there's sociologists have a law for this, the like very small blowback to something that can be used as an example, want to have it. This is an example of a very small blowback where like, because of that, if there were no such thing as residuals, I guarantee you 28 week, days later would be up on multiple streaming sites making money. Mm -hmm. right. But because of the math of are the residuals worth the amount of money it takes to process the residuals. There should be some exception for that. The problem is, is any exception would be abused and everybody would be like, what are you talking about? Batman's not getting streamed enough for residuals. Right. So you do have to account it. You do have to process it. I don't have a solution I'm proposing other than as filmmakers to ensure that you and your agents and lawyers are, are locking your contracts up such that there is some sort of availability or you take the Chris Marker approach. Chris Marker, famous French filmmaker, and deliberately left his works in uh, legal limbo in terms mm. of whether or not they were publicly available, created an email server with a digital avatar of his cat, made it his legal representative. Emails can be sent to it and successfully received, but are never responded to. Wow. And that is who has the legal rights to Chris Marker films. So everything you see of Chris Marker's online is legally in limbo on purpose wow. because of how much he loved his cat, which, you know, works for Sans Soleil. Chris Marker's work is great. You guys should watch some Chris Marker stuff. Not that I'm encouraging anyone to do anything actively illegal. I'm saying legal sure. limbo. <laughs> but I think that thinking about your digital legacy is a really interesting thing to try and negotiate and navigate and trying to find a way. Because for better or for worse, it's not just thinking about now. I also think about in 100 years, so many of the works we have from 100 years ago exist because of not the original copy, 
but because of weird copies that ended up places. The most famous example, Joan of Arc by Dreyer, thought it was a lost film, found it in a Swedish mental institution. So first off, those poor Swedish mental patients who only had Joan of Arc. One movie. Uh, one movie, and it was Joan of Arc, which if you... I love Joan of Arc. It's a great movie. Maria Falconetti slaps in that movie. But like not necessarily the only movie to watch if you are going through stuff over and over and over again. But the only reason we have that is because of that. And I think one of the strategies most of us have to try and make something that we hope someone will watch in 200 years is as many copies out there as it can possibly be. And as many people, like your hope is someone randomly watches it and falls in love with it and gets attached to it and, and shows it to their grandkids in 200 years. And so you would hope 28 days later, which is getting a threequel, would be widely available in dozen in millions of Blu-ray copies to increase the likelihood someone will watch it in a hundred years. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who you know wrote a script, got it on the blacklist, got his movie made, and now you can't rent or watch it anywhere because it was made digitally and no DVDs were pressed or Blu-rays. It's like a weird feeling to be like, I have a feature film that was made by a studio and cost two million dollars, and yet you can't watch it anywhere. That's shovel buddies, and I have a copy that. You know, I bought on Amazon in 2014 that still exists, but you can't watch it on Vudu. You can't watch it on Google. It just you get a message that says like this video is not currently available anywhere. I don't know where you can get it. You know, you stop getting those residual emails because they're not taking in money on it. Right. It's just something that exists. And they're like, oh, we'll let you know when it's back up for rent. Your hope always is that like someone like a Netflix comes in and says like these people are big stars now. Maybe we could flip this and do whatever. But, you know, in light of that. I do think the disposability has always been a worry to me of like, hey, you know, as you see like the Coyote versus Acme stuff or Batgirl or whatever, it's like you can invest a lot of money, but it doesn't mean they have to release it. It also doesn't mean that it has to continue to exist. So the lack of physical media, the lack of creating maybe even like an arc, arc, uh, artifact of like what was shot, done and made, you know, whether people liked it or not, I always think is... A little scary. You know, I've heard it a lot of this compared to like, oh, well, back in the day, if NBC had a show that only lasted two seasons, they, you know, it's not like they like put out the DVDs or did whatever. I was like, yeah, but they did eventually, right? Like eventually you could buy it. It it did exist and went away. And I think like having this all be so disposable is definitely something we're going towards because I think the inherent value of or what people used to value for what, you know, we did as a living is probably at an all time low if you look at AI, which is something we'll cover soon. But it is. You know, I think like a disturbing trend where, you you know, it's I always joke. It's like, oh, you don't get too attached to a script because in the best case scenario, a studio buys it and you probably get fired. But now it's like, (laughs) don't get too attached to anything you make because it might just yeah the movie you made because it might just completely go away. And that's a for better or worse situation. Doesn't it seem like the the root of this is that the accounting and legal fees are for residuals should just be automated? Like if if the fear is that it's not based that, that that cost is higher than you know what you'd earn, like why is that not automated? Why can't you just log it in a system and then it just like auto generates? I I'm sure that a tremendous amount of it is automated. I think there's a couple problems with that. One, I don't trust automated systems. Yeah, like I've I've had enough experiences with automated systems that I don't find predictable. If you've ever had to argue with someone about a payroll that didn't run right, if you've ever had any of those conversations. The other thing is everybody's contract has a right to audit. And yeah. it should have a right to audit because, you know, trust, trust but verify. And, you know, I have works. I have a, I have a friend who's a much more successful writer uh, than I am who, who likes to talk about how he's regularly, his lawyers are suing a company's lawyers while he's continuing to develop projects with that company. Yep. And he's yeah. like, look, it is just business. My lawyers fight with their lawyers about what I'm getting paid for three projects ago. And that doesn't, it's nobody, nobody has their feelings hurt by it while we're developing new projects. That's just yeah. legal. But inherent in that is some like, you know, accountants at the studios will get away with what they want. It's famous Hollywood unit math and all that. And there's jokes about it in lawsuits. And so I think that that also does it. I, you know, I think there's also an interesting argument to be made for weird contract clauses. Like, Mm -hmm. if you get there, say, I want 10,000 copies of the Blu-ray as part of my deal. Like, and that'll make people make a Blu-ray that might not have already because they had a contract to do it. 
I mean, the yep. reason why I'm thinking about that is I, you know, we, Jason and I made movies around the same time. My film Angels, Angels Perch came out in 2013. And there's, I have like 2,000 of the Blu-rays in my office. And I know mm-hmm. because 10 of them sit on the shelf and people regularly take one and I restock. And, but we were released independently. We worked as Synetic for our VOD streaming and SVOD, but we also had a theatrical through Tug. And then because we were a regional project targeting a market, Appalachia, that still didn't have right. streaming internet. We sold so many Blu-rays and DVDs. Yeah. So smart. And, but it's interesting now to think 10 years later, like we're still on all of our streaming because Synetic has kept it all there because they still get revenue from us. Like we still get checks. Like we still do well at all the holidays because it's a family appropriate movie. And I think that there is some interesting thing where I feel like certain things fall through the cracks where like Braveheart has probably never stopped printing DVDs. And there's probably a lot of independent productions that are still doing blu-ray because they're incentivized to but where you fall into the cracks on are on the smaller studio stuff as it ages and you don't want your project to fall through the cracks so yeah i wouldn't be surprised if you started you know famously terry malik has a technicolor print of the thin red line which was in his contract because it's the most archival way to preserve the die matrices of a movie and i'm sure he has weird stuff in his contract to this day because he's terry malik and i think that you know, we should all put 10,000 DVD, ultra HD, Blu-ray requests in our contract. It doesn't cost that much for the studio to make it, but then the studio is forced to make a Blu-ray and master it and do menus and all of that stuff. And, you know, the point remains, in an age of streaming, keeping a Blu-ray in print is still one of the best ways to ensure that there's the possibility of people being able to see your movie. Absolutely. Even like, I mean, look, There's lots of nefarious reasons not paying residuals. There's also just like legal reasons. Uh, You know, Kevin Smith has talked about why Dogma is not available anywhere. And it's just like because it was a Miramax thing. And then, you know, the Weinsteins wouldn't give it up or wouldn't let him seek alternative ways to print it. They let it completely fall out of print and then didn't sell things, you know, didn't sell streaming rights in a very petty way. And that's, you know, look, despite what you feel about Kevin Smith, again, a 1999 movie that I deeply enjoy that I just can't watch anymore. I can't rent it. I can't find it. And, you know, there's no signs of that coming out. And that's kind of at least all thanks to the legal ramifications of the Weinstein trial, which, you know, had to happen and is important, but also, you know, has seized several titles, you know, in that vein that you know would be valuable to sell off, but haven't been yet. So physical media, it's important to keep it. It's something that I recently have gotten on the kick on and, buying Blu-rays and there's like a, a bunch of great secondhand Blu-ray stores in Los Angeles where you can get some really good deals and different things. But uh, I mean, I saw The Abyss last year and that was like James Cameron said before the movie was the first time since the original theatrical release that his version of the movie was being seen because what they released on home video was edited and then they did a different three, four grab, which became the prominent home video thing. So you were, you know, couldn't see a movie that, you know, from one of the greatest directors of all time just because the ones they had issued didn't exist anymore or weren't correct. So kind of fascinating. All right. So after all that, the other big news going around the world right now is Sora. If, if you, if you're not, I've been under a rock, so I'm not aware. (laughs) Good. I'm glad Sora can be skipped in my opinion. So open AI, Sam Altman, big drama company around the future of AI. They finally released their text to video tool. And text-to-video has been a big thing lately. There's been a whole bunch of people competing in the space, some of it better than others. And OpenAI, the the big people, the people who literally, unrelated to Soraya, or probably related, but in a different story, are trying to raise $7 trillion to design their own, to design their own chip fab for AI-focused chips. Just seven trill. Yeah, yeah, just a, just a you know, Sevy Trilly, Trilly. Uh, uh, they are doing text image work, and they're doing text to video work, and they released their first demo. Now it's not publicly open yet. They 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 have some people red teaming, and there's a, a lot of reasons why it's probably not open to the public. Among them, Taylor Swift being litigious exactly. about yeah yeah the the most the most important reason is that Taylor Swift you know had that controversy and I think they know as soon as public gets their hands on it, they'll have, they need a team of lawyers ready, but go ahead, Charles. Sorry. Yes. And, or they could just try and build a tool that doesn't do that. 
they could just build a tool that doesn't let you do that. And that would be better. I'm here. But for instead, that. they build tools that let you do it and deal with the legal fallout later. Yep. And they try and claim that they can't control whether or not the tools do it. And and should you build a tool that doesn't let you do that? Regardless, I will say this about Sora being out. I think it is worth going to the site and looking at the samples. I I am it's it's hard to put. I'm not someone where you can put my AI thoughts all in one category. And, right. you know, I might be teaching an AI art class. I'm not against it entirely. I, like, I don't think we should take it to the woods and burn it. And I do think that people who think it's going to end the world are a little foolish. I do think that there's actual harm from it. Recycling IP and creative copyright today, like not about starting a nuclear war in 10 years, but like today. And obviously algorithms used in policing leading to people improperly like arrested based on all sorts of factors are awful. So like there's very real world harms right now that I think are way more important to worry about than like, will it start a nuclear war in 15 years? But in terms of filmmaking specifically, I think there's a very, I think that there are going to be uses that are interesting. I mean, I'll be straight up and honest. I'm currently, we're editing a documentary. And previously, if you needed a new soundbite or something, the director would have dubbed it in or the editor would have dubbed it in, or we would have just had text on screen. Like, oh, we're going to get soundbite, send something like this as a placeholder in the edit. Mm-hmm. And for the first time editor ever, my editor was like, hey, let's just AI that voice. And so currently there's like four lines in the current cut of the documentary I was watching this morning and giving notes on that are AI dubbed because the, we could get a voice that was closer to the subject of the person who will give the voice. And it's helping the edit. And so I'm not going to say all AI tools are awful. Because I think as a tool that's subordinate to creatives and supporting creatives, there's the possibility for it to be a useful tool. But I also think that that's really small, limited examples where we know exactly what we wanted to give us and we could evaluate what it could give us. I do think that like, I don't know, I'm really like, nothing I saw in the Sora demo made me that scared. Because nothing I saw in the Sora demo seemed anything more than stock footage. Like, mm-hmm. like there's that beautiful shot of like all those paper airplanes flying through the sky. I'm like, well, that's nice. Like, good for them. But like, it's not a movie. Like, it's not storytelling. Like, I still yeah. feel like people will assemble all of the images into something. I did see the most evocative shot I saw, and I actually sent it to a friend, was the, there's a like an establishing shot of a California gold rush town. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I think the reason why this is the most evocative for me is because it comes the closest to feeling like a shot from a movie because there's no one in it. And I feel like you're about to cut to a close up of the protagonist, but you're not trying to show me a protagonist. You're just giving me this really nice establishing shot of the gold rush. And so it feels the closest to the memory of a movie I might've otherwise liked, hmm. but everything with like close ups of people still feels uncanny Valley to me personally. Yeah. And none of it felt, it is definitely a leap forward from anything I've seen before. But I'm nothing made me convinced that it's going to be interesting anytime soon. Yeah, and I, I think you're right on there. The the one that I thought was most striking um, was the fake trailer they made about people on the moon, and it was like people surviving the moon. I thought that, despite feeling a little bit uncanny valley at the digitally produced people in it, it was interesting to see what I found to be incredibly lifelike faces and emotions on them you know right now i do like i talked to i guess maybe 15 different uh people across hollywood and took a brief survey a lot of people thought like look this is like previs stuff right like you know like when pixar makes a movie they have people rough animate it so they can sort of watch it and then decide where the plot holes are before they fully animate it they were like oh this is maybe a way where a director could come in and he or she could rough animate a scene to know where their storyboards are or like where to put the camera or what lighting would affect it, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what? That's interesting. And I could find that being really, really useful as someone who's, you know, working on a couple of different projects right now where we're trying to deal with light or shooting indoors or shooting outdoors and what's a transitionary period and blah, blah, blah. Like that, that made sense. You know, the other thing is commercials. And it's something we've talked about briefly on here, but when you're making a pitch deck or something like that, making a rough mock-up of what the commercial would feel like uh, for a company. Again, these are all jobs that that are altering or maybe being taken away or something like that i don't see that it's a full i don't see anybody making a full feature with this just because the amount of prompts you'd have to write for every shot and so detailed you'd have to go back and fix those prompts and do whatever 
Now, you know, we don't have a side-to-side comparison of what that would be like shooting a feature film, right? I, I'm sure what, what their argument would be is like, it's shorter if you just sit there and type different things. Fine. But the, this is phase one of the technology. Maybe not phase one, one, right? But like, we are, it, it's a rapid leap forward, which I think we should keep our eye on. The, my general concern for the whole thing is just like, I, I called it the TikTokification of film and TV. Just like a couple of months ago, Paramount for Mean Girls 25th anniversary put it on TikTok, the entire movie just broken into different TikToks. And it really depressed me, not because like, A, I think Mean Girls is the original. And, and look, I like the musical as well, but it was, you know, is a cr- incredible movie and is something you could sit down and watch in 102 minutes and, you know, and experience. But the idea of just people consuming it in, let's say, minute long bites, it depressed me in a, in a weird way. And I felt like, this isn't the way this was meant to happen, right? And 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 it 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 to me was like a cultural shift on like, well, if anybody can do this and anybody can like come up with an idea that's short, what's driving anybody to the theaters? What's why are you watching it next to someone? And like we all, I think, have experienced sitting uh, somewhere and sending our friends reels to watch. You know, hey, these are funny. This is whatever. And I I don't think uh, like TikTok is something that cuts into film and TV's business. It's it's something we're tracking. It's something we're looking at. So. Any more competition always worries me about the future of things. But I, I agree with you, Charles, that it didn't feel like we were there yet where I thought, oh, Joe or Jane Schmo in their basement is going to prompt us into a 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, like, but I do think they could prompt us into a TikTok that I would watch that, you know, I could get stuck down the rabbit hole of. And, and that is as much of a, a worry as anything else. I feel like anything long form that comes out of this is going to be more in the world of like stop motion, where it's like a craft that has a lot of TLC that goes into it and uh, it requires an incredible amount of patience and will be like, interesting, this came out of it. Like great stories can come out of stop motion, but it's just like the process of doing it is very specific and you have to have a lot of resources and time and energy and, and you have to know exactly what you're going for. Your comment about the the TikTokification of it all. Tomorrow we have Annalisa Maravina, who is a director and former development VP of development, coming in to talk about the consolidation of the industry and how sort of how we got here and and what that means for emerging writers and how you can build a sustainable career. So definitely, if if any hairs on the back of your neck were raised as Jason was talking about the TikTokification of it all. I recommend listening to this conversation tomorrow. And yeah, I mean, I think it's just going to be a a sad reality of the attention economy being, you know, reallocated. I do feel like that there will be a swing in a decade from now where we're, people will be like, I, I want to go to theaters to escape the the reels that everyone is sending me. And yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of over friends sending me reels without context. It's, (laughs) it's rude. It's rude, right? You're asking somebody to like stop what they're doing, engage with a piece of content. And like, usually it's like a funny thing, but now I'm like, okay. I think your friends just don't know you well, Gigi. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to load you up today, you know? (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, send the dog videos. I will find joy there. I mean, I think that there's a few factors at play here. I mean, one is that every article I read about AI always says, well, we're here now and imagine where we'll be in five years. And I feel like there's like this default assumption that technology always progresses. Mm-hmm. And I always like to remind people that like in 2014, by 2020, we were all supposed to have self-driving cars yes. and yep. they're still bad. People are still dying. It's still not happening. It could probably never happen. There's a very strong argument to be made that like, And I remember reading in those articles, like, look at where we are now with this Waymo car and where we'll be in five more years. And I'm like, there are actually hard problems. And I think story and character, I think character is the hardest problem. I think creating a character that is engaging is the hardest thing. It is all character. It is all, we think about Mean mean Girls and Regina and the character who Lindsay Lohan plays, whose name I forget because I have a cold, like our characters. Caddy. Caddy. Yeah. um, That everyone says Katie. Like are so complete characters they are full people and that is what engages us with mean girls 20 years later and i think that the character problem the like creating these as engaging characters will maybe be impossible for ai or at least a large language model and i you know when i was born if you were rich enough you could fly from new york to london on concord 
in about an hour and a half. And, you know, sometimes the whole plane would shake and you'd have to turn around and it wouldn't make it. But, like, if you had the money, you could get up there with Elton John and Keith Richards and fly New York to London. And you can no longer do that. Yeah, Technology is not always, like, it's it, it doesn't always keep going. And there's this, like, mm. fantasy we all have about AI. Is we watch this new tool improvement. And then we read an article about, like, he wants $7 trillion to keep going. And I'm like, I don't know that you're going to find $7 trillion. And yeah. I don't know that that is where, as a society, we want to be putting our energy. And I don't know that, like, like, I'm interested in this as a subset of tools built into Resolve to help with image stabilization and set replacements. I love the idea of, like, oh, I've built three quarters of a set and then I shot off the top of it. Like, whatever this tool set is to, like, replicate that set and replace it to the sky, hooray! Rest of World, it, it's a great website, Rest of World. It focuses on articles about the Global South and the rest, basically the rest of the world that's not normally covered in the mainstream press. Everybody should check it out. And they had a great article about AI and jobs where they interviewed a bunch of people around the globe about like how AI was affecting the job. This came out a couple months ago and there's a graphic designer in Mexico who was like, oh yeah, like the aesthetic has changed. People want that AI kind of thing, but they hire me because they try and get the AI thing to be the logo they want and it's not right. So I yep. get hired to fix the AI stuff. And there was a fashion photographer, going back to what Jason said about commercials, there was a fashion photographer in China and a model who both were like, oh yeah, this has already completely changed our business because now the bar is so much higher for what the background is and what the whatever is. So we AI, everything goes through AI, but the brand still cares about what the dress looks like. Mm -hmm. And so if like the, they're still hiring a photographer and a model, but it's all through AI and it's inputs and outputs and adjustments to continue to work. And I think that we're going to see that as, as I've said, like a dozen times in the last year, 90% of a screenwriter's job is not writing pages. It's talking to directors and producers and team members to figure out like what everyone wants. And then like, you're lucky if 10% of your time is actually delivering pages and those pages take into account all those other human factors. Somebody, this is somebody else's quote, but somebody was looking at some AI screenwriting output and they were like, well, this is like bad film students. And we have an infinite supply of bad film students. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I don't know why we need a computer to do that. And it's true, like bad film students who still need to learn about character and plot and development, collaboration and teamwork. And we all I don't there. know that you can teach all of that to an AI. Yeah, yeah. You definitely can't teach it taste. Yeah, we can't teach people. I mean, my worry always is that I think taste and, and media literacy is at an all-time low, which is why those... Commercial execs probably love those commercial treatments done by AI, you know, but uh, it is such funny. I, I talked to a friend who is a director who I won't name in that space. And they were saying sometimes the AI prompts elicit un like unfortunate things where like the, the brands are like, oh, you can do that. Oh, great. I didn't know it would look like that. She's like, oh, well, wait a minute. I can't do that. You know, like the AI, like your budget doesn't dictate that. But the images I had doing this would or. Another funny story is like turning in a treatment where they decided like the AI images, which they had specifically asked for, were too evil looking and scrapping the project, you know, which is like an unintentional mm -hmm. like, hey, when we actually see this on paper, it doesn't look good. So it'll be, look, I, I saw a Waymo when I was walking my dog this morning. Unfortunately, I am one of the zone neighborhoods in Los Angeles that is that is allowing driverless cars to zip around. And, you know, I, I have totally never thrown anything at it as it drives past. Wait, but, I uh, I, but, we've talked about this before, right? That you're so anti. I don't like them. I'm but, pro. Uh, I'm like drive, all about. They drive around. Them. I mean, whatever. I'm in Century City. Please don't find me, listeners. But, you know, it, it is interesting to see that stuff out there. And I'm excited for what could happen. You know, like the fear, obviously, is always going to be there. But I don't think we're not looking at the T-1000 right now. You know, we're we're still looking at, you know, a microwave on wheels. And I think Sora is in the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, with self-driving cars, it might not be T-1000 yet, but it already has a body count. Right, Multiple exactly. people have died. Like, yeah, yeah, it does we, it. We, like, yeah. Yes, like self-driving cars are killing people. And on the streets of San Francisco, on the streets of Phoenix, people are dying from self-driving vehicles. And yeah, no, I mean, the only plus of self-driving vehicles for me is I feel like even better jaywalking in front of them. Because I'm like, okay, like, well, you're a self-driving car, so I can just like completely take the road back from you. But that's my dog's the only fifteen. I always let him walk in front of it. You know, I'm like, oh, oh yeah. this is yeah, you you know, it's that Mad Men quote. You she grew up in a barn and she died on the twenty first <laughs> floor in Manhattan. She's an astronaut, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, no, the, the beautiful thing about New York is we will never allow those to be tested here. 
that is, it's just not a very New York thing. When New York, one of those scooter companies came to New York and got brief permission to do scooters in New York. And within a month, 30% of them were in the East River. And so they yeah. pulled out of the test. And I was like, fuck yeah, New York. That's the way you do it. We, we do not welcome your scooters here. I have not done the research, but I'm just like very curious what the ratio of self-driving cars are to killing people compared to people driving cars. Like, I, I want to know the numbers because, you know, I, I, I guess I grew up in or I lived in San Francisco, worked in tech and just saw them everywhere. So I'm like l- more used to them. But like, I, I'm curious what if there is a difference, if it's like 11 deaths versus like, what's the ratio per million compared right to Right in to tell cars? Gigi the death ratio of self-driving Please, cars. Somebody tell me because I don't want to do the analysis myself. I am sure it is safer than humans driving. I am sure it's not as safe as if we figured out a way to get rid of cars entirely by having effective mass transit, trams, That's buses. That's what I'm here for. That's Taylor the Swift solution. concerts in Melbourne. With it's a big Taylor Swift episode, but you know Taylor Swift's uh, biggest concert ever was in Melbourne last week, and there's no parking at that stadium. 110,000 people got there entirely by transit, and all of the that. American fans were like, "Where are the parking spots?" I am confused <laughs> watching this video. And that made me very happy. I hope that Taylor's out there promoting active mass transit. But on to what Hollywood is promoting these days. We have a thing up on the site, which I thought was really interesting, about how short stories are hot right now. But interestingly, you do not you didn't mention the hottest of short stories, Jason. <laughs> What's the hottest of short stories? Cat people. I just watched that last yeah. week this last weekend, unfortunately. That yeah, was like I, yeah. the biggest of the viral short story hits that got turned into a movie. Absolutely. And by the time it got turned into a movie, it had all fallen apart and it was a mess. How is the movie? I never ended up seeing the movie. I don't think it knew what it wanted to be. And yeah, yeah it's it, kind of... Uh, it, it, you know what I'll say for the movie? It's, there's a reason it isn't easy to adapt a short story sometimes, even if yeah. it's the hottest short story. I think that's fair. I think that's yeah. fair. Yeah, not it, it. I think it was in came out around the time that Fresh came out and Promising Young Woman came out. Yeah, and, and those Zola, two films the, and the, Zola. Uh, yeah, those two like films did it a lot friend. better. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. The short story phenomenon, you know, I think comes from two places. Um, one is like Cat People, the sort of paradigm, the New Yorker short story that gets hot, that goes viral, that everyone passes around. Uh, that used to be things like blogs. Like I'm, I, I'm old enough to remember a blog called 40 Days of Dating, which wound up being like a humongous sale. And the reason you've never seen that movie is because uh, of what Charles said, that eventually things die down and suddenly movies get expensive and you never know when they'll happen. But, you know, lots of different reasons. But short stories, I think, in Hollywood have taken the place of treatments. It used to be like, hey, so-and-so attached to this treatment and sold and did whatever. Mm-hmm. Short stories have become a thing for writers to write that sometimes will take less time than writing a full feature spec, but it gets their you know noisy log line down, whether it's a huge sci-fi idea or like maybe an action film or some sort of grounded character drama. Uh, they're able then to get big attachments, send them around. People are much more interested in reading a, let's say, five to 25-page Word document, even though that 25-page Word document should take the exact same amount of time to read as a feature film spec, but you know, I digress. Uh, and then they get those attachments, purchase those short stories for, I think it depends on the package, some, but the rate is you know, comparable to feature specs. And then someone adapts it, whether it's the original writer, whether it's a different writer, bring it on and, and go for it. These have gotten incredibly popular within the last two years. Now, honestly, in the last, let's say, just year after COVID and, and then now, I've tracked probably like 10 or 15 huge sales in, in this space. People are taking it out. Directors are more willing to attach to it. Uh, back in the day, we used to call them treatments, right? They were like yeah. not fully fleshed out ideas that people were interested in doing. Now, I think a lot of these, at least the ones I've read that have sold, are pretty fleshed out. They usually have a strong main character and a point of view and a, a big world they build, but maybe don't fully factor in, you know, what we would call like the second act stuff, you know, like the fun and games, different things, but usually have like an ending, whether it's ambiguous or a way to seal it up that an exec can read and look at. I find this phenomenon to be kind of strange, you know, like... I always thought we were going to go back to a spec screenplay boom. It always feels like people like Dan Kunk on Twitter are always saying, write your spec. And that's something I've always believed in and something I still think is the best thing to do. But short stories are the idea of like 
being able to sell ideas is very intriguing to me, even though I don't necessarily understand why a lot of agents are pushing their clients to just sit down and write a Word document, um, especially without huge attachments. But maybe it is an easier buy-in for these bigger studios to see, let's say, a huge dune-sized world you know, contained to some pages and see the potential from there. But a lot of it, I do think, is built into like, hey, could we get this then to go viral? Could we publish this on Slate? Could we force a New Yorker, you know, force, but could we goose, you know, grease some skids and get this published to go viral later? Those kinds of questions. Because again, it all comes down to like, this is intellectual property we own. We could spin this off. It could be a TV show, it could be whatever. And maybe we could purchase it, purchase it for less than we'd have to. You have a hotter Someday. take, Charles? I know you promised a hot yeah, take. Yeah, you have a hot take, Charles. Oh, my hot take is, the, is one that I like is cynical. And I, I was surprised that you didn't take this cynical tack in the article, which is, this is clearly because people, executives don't like reading. Oh, like, totally. Famously, executives don't like reading full features. And look, as someone who like started this industry as a reader and 90% of the scripts I read were awful, like I get it. Like This is actually an area where I have empathy for executives. You have many things to do. You have meetings. You have phone calls. You don't want to read scripts. You already are expected to read six scripts every Sunday. And, it, and you know, one of the problems with the industry is we depend upon coverage to get our content to eyeballs, right? Like, uh, these are bullshit numbers, but like a random producer production company might get 50 scripts in a week that they have to get through their readers. And then the executives might read the coverage from 10 of them and read four or five of them over the weekend, right? You're depending, if you're in that 50, in someone writing accurate coverage about your project that is correct and as exciting and saves your reveal for the right place and captures the character's voice and like there's good coverage readers and there's bad coverage readers and uh, writers, however you want to say it. So I think that this is a nice shortcut where I think that there's the possibility that if you write a really strong 18 page short story that paints the world, shows off the main character, has a twist, you might actually end up higher in the read pile and are faster to get read. And also like I read a lot of screenplays and I think everybody who wants to be a filmmaker should be reading lots of screenplays and historical screenplays and current screenplays. Like it is part of the job. Steven Soderbergh always puts out that amazing list of all of the content he consumes, like every movie he watches a year and every plays he goes to. And I've always wondered, he probably doesn't list it for contractual reasons, but like he should also list every script he reads. Cause I guarantee that man's reading four or five scripts a week of all mm. of between everything he's producing and all of his friends. And it is part of your job as a filmmaker. You should be reading scripts. Yeah. It's not as fun as reading a good short story. It's just not. A script is a technical document. It is a different task. It's not prose. Prose is designed to draw you in and paint a world. It's a different thing. Yeah. And so I totally get why if I was an executive and it was Sunday and I was hungover and I had six scripts and two <laughs> short stories to read, I would read those short stories first. Absolutely. And so I get it. So for me, I mean, I, I, I guess it's just a hot take in terms of it's not even that mean a hot take. I'm like, I understand, executive, why you are reading these first and why when one's good, it's easier. Because also, a lot of times, these decisions aren't like one person. It's not Louis B. Mayer sitting by the pool. Exactly. It's like there's a team of people, and you have to convince the other people in your company, the other development execs, your boss, you have to convince them to read it as well. So instead of being the person with like a 117-page spec that you think is dynamite that you want to get in everybody else's pile, you're now the person who's like, I found this great nine-page short story that I want to get in your pile. And it's an easier sell. So Absolutely. strategically, I, I, I get it. I'm fascinated. I, I, I always think like when I submit ideas, you, I used to think like, oh, it'd be easier for me to just write this down. Now I'm in the Zoom era. Everyone's like, just come in and pitch it. And come in and pitch it means hop on a camera for 10 minutes and tell my boss what the idea is. So mm -hmm. I'm always wondering like, when is this just going to come down to just ideas again? But I, I do think like, it, the, you know, interfacing with people is also at an all time low, right? This, yeah. this new generation gets older. So it, it becomes a nice way of like, this is short. And also I can keep you at arm's length and I can pass via email, which is, you know, isn't awkward, you know, and do it on my own time. It's a great reminder that your scripts should be entertaining. Your goal is to create a great read. And if you can elicit the same reaction, the same joy, the same leaned in engagement in the first 30 pages of your feature that somebody gets reading a New Yorker short story, like that is you doing your job. Somebody recently told me that the most important, the most important thing in your script are the first 30 pages. The most important part of your movie is the last 10 minutes. 
And that stuck with me. I think it just, you have to remember, like, are you hooking somebody to get them to buy into your idea? And then what feeling are you leaving your audience with at the very end? And, you know, that that is a good way to think about how you should be spending your energy. I, I look, I'll always second the first 10 pages are the most important part of your script. As, I, as someone who is also a reader and as someone who's a writer now, many executives are reading one through 10, figuring out that jump to act one. What's this actually about? I'll look 25 to 30 and then flipping to the end to see if it's got some cool set pieces or whatever and going from there. The short story phenomenon crazy. I have not jumped on yet. I did come up with some ideas, but I, a lot of the uh, ideas I think I put out, my manager was just like, these seem like traditional New Yorker short stories and not <laughs> movies. So, you know, there is a gap to do it. But, you know, look, a, a many, many, many great films have come from short stories in the bedrooms. One of my all-time favorites came from a great short story. And, you know, certainly a lot of hit the public domain. So it's something worth checking out in terms of IP and for people looking around. But yeah, I do think, unfortunately, Charles, you're right. that The cynicism is maybe ruling the day here. This conversation makes me realize what I think the issue is with Cat Person. I think that they took a, a story, a short story that people really resonated with. They tried to make it a high concept traditional movie. And the way that it would have worked or could have worked is if it was low concept, character driven, and more of a vibe than, you know, a story with the traditional, you know, structural things that really took it to a place at the end where I was like, really, we're going here. This was not in the short story and this feels unearned and not right. Yes. Well, well, also with all IP, you end up with this mess that the Frito-Lay movie went through where you have a story and it's going and then the public events eclipse you. So Cat People was fiction. It was published as fiction. And then someone read it and was like, oh, you wrote this about me. This is me. This is my life. And it turned out that this woman dated a dude and then broke up with the dude and the dude's next girlfriend was the author of cat person and wrote the story about her boyfriend's like previous relationship that she had heard all about and used all of these actual details, like the actual movie theater that she worked in and all of this other stuff. And first off, how bizarre must it be to be reading the New Yorker and be like, this is about me. What this is going on? This exact thing happened to a friend of mine, not the New Yorker, but I think it was the Atlantic. So. Oh my God. Wow. I mean, you have to, I mean, for a minute, you feel like it's Truman Show. You're like looking around for the cameras. You're like, I've told this story yeah. a dozen times, but in high school, my girlfriend's ex-boyfriend was on like the local quiz team. And I turned uh -huh. on the TV once and it was just a close up on his face for like 30 <laughs> seconds. And then it cut to a wide shot and he was on a quiz show and he had buzzed and it was like 30, but for 30 seconds, it was just a full frame shot of his face. Oh, and I was like, this is very hilarious. Odd. This is very disorienting. I do not understand what's going on, but it would be worse if it was the New Yorker and it was my entire life in detail. So anyway, she went public with an article that got a lot of traction that came out before Cat People did, but I believe after Cat People was already shooting. So like, yeah. what the fuck do you do with that? This thing that you were sold as fiction and you, the director, were given a piece that you were sold as fiction that you are free to recreate from, you're free to interpret. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, it's not fiction. It's not fiction. It's somebody else's life story. I didn't have their rights. Yeah. I mean, I like, I don't say my heart breaks for the filmmaker, but like my heart goes out to the filmmaking team of cat people. Holy fuck. Like that must've sucked. Yeah. That must've sucked. Yeah. I was going to say something weird... very dark, but I'm going to withhold. <laughs> I'm going to withhold. Uh... Uh, Hollywood now, uh, look, it's the danger with grabbing some of these viral things is if you don't know what they're attached to or the story behind it or it doesn't have the ending you want or whatever, you know, you have to wait it out. It's why I I always joke that's like I'm against building statues of anybody that's alive. You know, I'm like, you just don't know. You don't know where I their like life's going to go. You're, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing. You got to, it, it's expensive to take down a statue, you know? So my full back tattoo of that. Bill Cosby got really embarrassing <laughs> as time went on. And it's been very oh expensive gosh. to remove. That's my worst nightmare. <laughs> I liked the Cosby show as a kid. I turned 18. I got a full back tattoo. He's in the sweater. You're joking. Now, now it's just the sweater. I've gotten the face removed. It's just the sweater. You're kidding. Yeah, just I'm absolutely pudding. kidding. Okay. I was never, I was like, I was never that big a fan of Bill Cosby. But, you know, there are people out there who legitimately yeah. loved the Cosby show and probably have Cosby tattoos who are like, wait a minute. He's the second greatest rapist of the 20th century? Yeah. What? Oh. Like, yeah, exactly. Be careful so, yeah. what you tattoo on your body. That's the yes. lesson. 
Yeah, it definitely Speaking is. of bodies, we are interviewing a, a table, a round table of intimacy coordinators next week. And I'd love to hear what questions you have for intimacy coordinators. Speaking of also weird segue from Bill Cosby. This new world that we're in where that doesn't have to happen. I'm so, so yeah, we're, what questions do you guys have? I have a screenwriter question, which is just, you know, when I'm writing sex scenes, uh, depending on like the rating of the movie or whatever, it's like figuring out like how detailed I get on the page and whatever. And, mm. and I know intimacy coordinators, or at least I'm not sure, right? What's, what is the, what's like, would they prefer it to be more detailed on the page, you know, or, or do they prefer to figure it out in the moment? And, and if you're figuring it out in the moment, I guess, what's the best way to communicate to them the tone of the sex scene, right? Because a, mm-hmm. a sex scene in nine and a half weeks in Desperado, very different than a sex scene in American Pie, right? So it's like, yes. how do we, how do we figure out, you know, how do you find that balance and like, what's the appropriate way to communicate with them in that, Such and, a good you know, question. would they rather have it on the page or, or on the stage? So I would say like, what are the, what are the green flags that they're looking for in the interview process that let them know it's a production mm-hmm. they want to collaborate with? You know, we talk a lot about red flags and I, I want to be conscious of the red flags, but I also want to know like, what are the, when they're interviewing for a job, what are the signs that the production's taking it seriously and it's a production that they would want to collaborate with and engage on? What are those yeah. things that, that they're looking for that people can learn from? I'd also like to ask them about any training materials that they feel like are appropriate and well done. I know that in England, the English Film Board or one of the English unions just released a really great intimacy coordinator training for students that I read and shared with my students and was great. And like, what are the other training materials that you think people should be familiar with before they're even interviewing intimacy Mm. coordinators for jobs? And also how early in the process would they like to get hired? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Those are great questions. Cool. To our listeners, send us your questions by end of day Monday. The 25th, I believe, of February 2024. And continue to send them if you are listening to this afterwards, because this is an ongoing conversation. All right, everybody, we're all on the internet. I'm mostly on Blue Sky now, but I do YouTube stuff occasionally. I still get subscribers. I haven't put up a video in like two months. So YouTube, your algorithm, you're feeding me up to people. I appreciate you. I'm at Lost in Graceland across all socials. I will be doing a series of videos about how I made my indie movie coming out this spring. I don't know where those will live yet. So if you have any thoughts, reels, TikTok, Instagram video, which is reels, I'm very open and I want to know where I can meet you guys where you're at. I'm at Jason Ellerman on Blue Sky on Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now. Jason at nofilmschool.com. Keep the emails coming. I'm always excited to engage with you all and get it, you know, um, so keep those ideas coming in because my brain uh, not all always working. So happy to get the fresh ideas from you guys and answer any questions we can as we go. 